Hi, this is Paul, and this is Rough Draft for Sunday, where I'm running through the current version of my Sunday sermon. A lot of news in the last few years about the decline of church traditions. Ryan Burge, who does statistics on these kinds of things, had a tweet this week. I don't think people fully grasp how much of Protestant Christianity is going to die off in the next three decades. 68% of Missouri Synod Lutherans have seen their 55th birthday, and it's 57% of Southern Baptists. I think the Christian, um, there's no majority, there's no major denomination where a majority is under 45 years old. Now, that might be a little deceptive because probably the, the median age of, um, of a person in the United States is about 45 years old. So, in other words, there are no major Protestant denominations that are trending younger than the national average, but there are some, and the Missouri Synod Lutherans, I think probably the Christian Reformed Church is probably in that same ballpark as the Missouri Synod Lutherans. These have traditionally been institutions of wisdom to pass on to younger generations um, wisdom on how to live. Now, part of what we're facing is that via technological change, which is happening very rapidly, uh, it's it's hard to maintain wisdom. It's hard to know what's wise. The institutions of wisdom transmission have been disrupted by the internet and many other things. That doesn't mean that people don't have needs and don't have questions, and churches need to figure out how to reach out, address, and respond to these changes. Now, before five years ago, I probably had no idea of the impact of social media and even just the impact of YouTube. And now, especially with younger people, um, where do people turn? They turn to Instagram, they turn to YouTube. YouTube is just sort of the how-to social media. And so I decided to do my Google Zeitgeist search and I decided to do it in YouTube. And so I had both my signed in and not signed in account search for wisdom on YouTube. And very interestingly enough, uh, Christian, Christian sites came up first um, on the not signed in, that was an ad, of course, because um, I have YouTube Premium, so I don't get ads. Uh, God has a plan for you. Uh, words of wisdom. I have no idea what's going on in that short motivational story. Uh, stick figure, wisdom, full album, both had sort of music in there. Uh, seven laws of wisdom, you know, something from um, ancient wisdom. And then this uh, sad. Sadguru Wisdom, 30 Minutes of Pure Sadguru Wisdom, uh, came up fourth in both. I thought, well, that's rather interesting. But I don't think a lot of people are looking to churches. They're going to YouTube for wisdom. Now, there's a lot of things you can ask in a space like this. If Jesus is the Son of God, shouldn't he live the best? Uh, shouldn't he live the greatest life ever lived? And if you ask a question like that, you have to begin to ask yourself complex questions about what, in fact, is a great life. Um, getting crucified by the Romans at age 33 doesn't sound so great. Um, now, obviously, resurrection changes that, but if you don't believe in the resurrection, hmm, what does that say? Shouldn't he be the most? Shouldn't he be the most convincing person who ever lived? One of the things that you notice right away in the Gospels is that people were very divided about Jesus, who he was, and what they thought he was about. He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, show it to us. And I think for a lot of people, when it comes to church, 
that's sort of their answer. Um, walking into church should have the same predictable results in my immediate happiness as watching a movie on Netflix or watching my favorite YouTube videos or something of this nature. Now, so much of this gets at what I've often called the great puzzle. This world is full of so much glory and pleasure, and it's also full of so much pain and toil. Should the creator job, God have done a better job? I mean, we, we imagine that he should have been maximizing our local happiness. Um, the problem is that we can also imagine a worse world. And so really the much religious conversation over centuries has gone into this question, how can we account for the world? How can we know it? How can we know how to do the right thing? How to answer this great puzzle? Now, Two weeks ago, we looked at the Beatitudes, um, and we talked about them as aporia. Um, blessedness seems, according to Jesus, more surprising than you would think. And the world is upside down in some ways, and Jesus is, is saying that he is going to put the world right. Now, last week we looked at this question of righteousness and we got into this question, okay, what is it that, that makes the good cop good and the corrupt cop corrupt? What does he lack? And throughout the ancient world, there's a long conversation about this question, righteousness. Now, we should hunger and thirst for it, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, but, but it's not exactly easy to identify um, or to point out. It's a gift, but... It's a gift that seems to grow through our struggles. People rightly expect churches to have more of it, and they are put off when they don't, but um, the relationship isn't anywhere near as linear as some people might imagine. They did an interesting study at one point of someone who would, let's say, come into a strange town not knowing anyone, and it's a dark night, and you had two taxi cabs, one with a Bible on the dashboard and one without, um, Generally speaking, people would pick the, task, the, the taxi with, with the Bible on the dashboard, even if they were significantly cynical and skeptical about the power of religion. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, as we noted for the last couple of weeks, is a sermon, which means it's an extended discourse on one point. And I think the topic of the sermon is, in fact, righteousness. There's an introduction, which are the Beatitudes. There's a main body, which focuses on righteousness. We looked at that last week. And there's a conclusion. And the conclusion, like many sermonic conclusions, has warnings, applications, and exhortations. Now, now there's something deeply apocalyptic about Jesus. He himself is very disruptive. And this sort of matches if we believe that Jesus is asserting that the world is upside down and he has come to set it right. The inbreaking of God into this world is disruptive, disturbing, nourishing, and finally eternal. Now, Jesus begins his conclusion with this exhortation, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Notice how Jesus sort of brings both worlds together here that leads to life, leads to the life of the age to come, leads to the tasting of the life of the age to come that is narrow. But the emphasis here is that expediency or following the crowd puts you in the wrong direction. Now, this isn't actually antithetical to happiness or meaning. A lot of people have noted that, in fact, 
people love and need challenges. And when they don't have challenges, they get bored and in their boredom often destructive, even self-destructive. People are thrilled by a challenge that they can achieve and have a sense of progress in their life. There's something deep in us that wants challenge, and Jesus is giving us an invitation to get onto this narrow, difficult road for life. In fact, most of our movies have deep apocalyptic threads and challenge people to do the hard, difficult, sacrificial thing. You even have Iron Man here making the sign of the cross. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, this seems absolutely self-evident, but what Jesus notes is that actually there's a lot of difficulty in figuring out who to listen to, who to emulate, who to pursue. He says, beware of deception. And a lot of this, actually, the first measure is sort of breadth and narrowness. And now this is sort of time, because the point is that initially things look good, but a wolf in sheep's clothing, over time, the wolfness will become evident by the behavior. It begins by looking like what you're looking for, but in the end, you become its victim. The difference between a wolf and the fruit of a tree is generosity. The wolf looks only to consume. A wolf in sheep's clothing lures you in in order to devour you. Righteousness, however, the main topic of the sermon, produces fruit. And that fruit is generosity, and that fruit feeds the rest of the world. At some point, that which does not come into alignment with what is finally true, good, and beautiful Jesus basically says, we'll be done away with. Now, often people look to miracles because miracles are sort of exceptions in the world that we find and we say, aha, well, well, this must be the path to what we're looking for. And, and Jesus, for someone who prophesies and casts out demons and performs, performs miracles, is surprisingly um, skeptical about how well these can necessarily orient or guide you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And Jesus can be very direct and very straightforward. Jesus is basically saying it's alignment. But again, we struggle with that. We, we see only a little picture and we struggle with the big picture, yet something in us sort of sort of orients us and, and sometimes we can sortly, sort of understand and identify the genuine article. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man. What are we looking for? We're looking for wisdom. A wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, 
because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. Jesus is saying quite clearly, you can hear this all day long. You can memorize this. You can say, oh, this is wonderful. You can do miracles. You can do all these sorts of things. But unless you actually put them into practice, none of this will do you any good in the apocalypse, in the day of trouble, in the day of disaster. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Now, a contractor once told me, he said, you know, sand is a tremendous, um, sand is a tremendous thing to build upon. And there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, often, if you're pouring a cement pad, you know, it's nice to put some sand down so you can sort of get that thing even. If you're building a house, sand can be, if it's compacted well, it can be relatively stable. You can move it around, get things level. It's, sand is wonderful because it's very malleable and you can do a lot with it. But in the day of calamity, what can happen and whether that calamity is fast or slow, well, water tends to move the sand. And water itself will move the sand, and that's when you get these dramatic pictures of sinkholes where, well, under the pavement, water has been flowing, and it's moving the sand, moving the sand, moving the sand, and all of a sudden, collapse. Down it goes, and, well, here's two cars in this one. Moving water erodes sand in a way that rock is obviously more resistance towards. Waters rise. Sometimes they erode quietly underneath. Sometimes they just rush in and take it away here in Sacramento. In the last month, we've had a lot of examples of water coming in. And, well, suddenly in Sacramento, everybody's thinking about high ground. Jesus says, live my way and you will stand the test. Well, what test? Well, the apocalypse, the day of the Lord comes to us all. Sometimes it comes midstream, sometimes it comes quietly, and we discover, oh, there's nothing under this road. Sometimes it comes all at once, and there's a day of calamity, and Jesus says, what you do all the time, the righteousness within you, how you live, will prepare you for that day. Now, Leslie Newbegin was a missionary in India from the United Kingdom, and he spent his career in India doing missionary work, and when he came back to the UK, he discovered that the land had changed dramatically and not for the better. And he wrote a number of remarkable books in his retirement, one of them, The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society, and this is what he noted. I've come to feel that the primary reality of which we can take account in seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that power, which has the last word in human affairs, is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel, well, what's a hermeneutic? That's a fancy word. A hermeneutic is an interpretive key, an interpretive structure, the way to go from words into truth. The only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. 
I am, of course, not denying the importance of the many activities by which we seek to challenge public life with the gospel, evangelistic campaigns, distributions of Bibles and Christian literature, conferences, and even books as this one. But I am saying that these are all secondary and that they have a power to accomplish their purpose only as they are rooted in and lead back to a believing community. Now, you can see this survey and note we face challenges. We are not in any way worse off than we were 2,000 years ago when one man led a group of clueless disciples distracted by their own messianic notions. We today are distracted by our own erroneous messianic notions. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that a power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? When we individually and corporately resemble that man to a sufficient degree that the world stops to wonder at its strangeness and its beauty. More strange than a burning bush, more available than water, more reliable than sand. We might be terribly impressed at millions of views on a YouTube video. Now that I have, I don't have any videos with a million views. I've got a few in six figures or one in six figures. That really isn't my, um, which I can't really take any credit for. But having spent five years on YouTube, I'm not necessarily all that impressed by big numbers on YouTube. Um, I'm more impressed by the strangeness of one person, one you see in the flesh, you know personally, who will likely have way more power than any program or presentation. I've used this book before, Shangtung Compound. Over the last couple of years, I've read up on World War II history, especially on the conflict between the Japanese and the Chinese. Of course, that's in many ways the war that got the United States into the war. Japan was trying to eat China. China was simply too big, and Japan found itself mired in this war, um, didn't have enough national, natural resources for it, was buying natural resources from the United States. The United States saw how these resources were being used, cut the Japanese off, and the Japanese decided to attack America. But there were, of course, many um, American expatriates living in China for a whole variety of reasons. There were business people, there were missionaries. Um, China was before the Second World War, quite weak and dependent, and there were a lot of people from all over the world that was there. And then when the Chinese, when the Japanese would conquer a section, they didn't, they had to figure out what to do with all these expats, and they didn't necessarily want to run afoul of their countries. You had Germans and Swedes and Americans and people from all over the world, so they would put them into these internment camps. And they weren't as bad as, let's say, Japanese POW camps, but they certainly weren't good. Langdon Gilkey was one of the people there, and sort of like um, Viktor Frankl, as a young man, he sort of made a study of, well, what happens to this vast variety of people, businessmen and priests and Protestant missionaries and all these kinds, families, men, women, children, they're put into this camp and they have just an indefinite amount of time where they have to somehow eke out a living under very difficult, stressful, compact situations. And he wrote a book about it. And he noted very much sort of two kinds of missionaries. One would imagine, well, all the missionaries should be, you know, above average. Well, he noted that some of them seemed useless 
and annoying to everyone else in the camp, and then there were the other kind. These people were able to meet cooperatively and warmly with one another, even with those who had no relation to Christianity at all. Whatever their code of personal morals might be, they knew that love and service of the neighbor and self-forgetfulness, even, even of one's own holiness, were what a true Christian life was supposed to be. Unlike the pious legalists, they attempted to apply no homemade plumb line to their neighbors' lives, but sought only to help them whenever their, their help was really needed. And then he noted this one crisis that arose in the camp. About a year before the end of the war, it began to dawn on parents that something explosive was going on among their teenagers. As always, rumors filled the air, but their investigation by the discipline committee uncovered a lush situation. In the unused basement of one of the buildings, in a small dugout, air raid shelter, in another part of the compound, younger, youngsters were gathering regularly for what could only term so what, what we could only term sexual orgies. In the room of Mrs. Johnson, the poor Eurasian woman with three children, they were meeting early in the evening for intercourse on the small room's three beds while Mrs. Johnson kept watch at the door, her own children aged 11 to 14 apparently taking leading roles in this affair. Now, this book was written obviously after World War II, but what we know about um, childhood sexual, sexual abuse and its long-term damage can lead us into the seriousness of this story. When the parents had said irritably, um, run along outside and find something to do, the kids had done exactly that. And I think this is a story for our age because this is what many parents do. There are other parents who are way too much the helicopter parents, but go get out of my hair. We're, we're stuck in this camp. We have no idea where we're going to be. Food is short. Um, space is short. Um, it, they're in, a, they're in a concentration camp of sorts. The ages of those involved staggered that worldly camp the most. When the facts were brought to light, parents had, who had taken no interest in what their children were doing so long as they were out of the room were horrified and furious, and the parents held a mass meeting to deal with the crisis. And you can imagine, well, we've got to blame someone. Well, you can blame the Japanese. It's not going to do you any good. Many irate parents declared that they must be remiss in some way and they should jolly well do something about it in pronto. But it was interesting that not one parent came up with a concrete suggestion. And certainly no one volunteered to do anything constructive himself. In other words, there's a problem. Someone should fix it. The meeting ended on a note of unmitigated gloom. Short of an unworkable sundown curfew, what nobody, um, what could anybody really do? To no one's surprise, the crisis was finally dealt with by the missionary teachers, none of whom had children of that age. They met together, devised a program of evening entertainment. Again, this isn't some, you know, vast, miraculous, spiritual thing they're going to do. Just really rather common and commonsensical. Dancing, square dancing, games, science study, language lessons, and so on ad infinitum. To the anxious parents, none of this sounded nearly exciting enough to draw the minds of the children away from their new newfound diversions. Now, bear in mind, these are not children raised on television and cell phones. These are children that are raised before any of that. 
As a result, there was initially a great deal of criticism of this missionary effort. Typical, isn't it? Too little, too late. Somehow, the missionaries were to blame? Fortunately, the teachers knew young people better, better than their parents, apparently. And so they kept persistently at it, organizing a game room and assigning evenings amongst themselves for Monday through Friday for supervision. There was chess and checkers, tournaments, craft shows, dark contests, one-act plays, homemade puppet shows, everything that ingenuity could devise. Five or six good souls kept the operation going, spending two long evenings every week supervising these kids. Obviously for no pay. They weren't even their own children. Just giving of themselves for the welfare of these children that they owed nothing to in a secular sense. The program worked. And from then on, despite regular and careful investigation, no more signs from our formal troubles were discovered. As many parents looking, um, looking up in sad and worried anger from their bridge games agreed, it's about time they did something. The man who more than anyone brought about this solution to the teenage problem was Eric Ridley. This is Eric Liddell, the man about whom they eventually made the movie Chariots of Fire. It is rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. Often in an evening of that last year, I headed for some pleasant rendezvous with my girlfriend, would pass the game room and peer in to see what the missionaries had cooked up for the teenagers. As often as not, Eric Ridley would be bent over a chessboard or a model boat or directing some sort of square dance, absorbed, warm, and interested, pouring all of himself into this effort to capture the minds and imaginations of those pent-up youths. If anyone could have done it, he could. A track man, he had won the 440 in the Olympics for England in the 20s and that had come to China as a missionary. He was a son of missionaries. In a camp, he was in his mid-forties, lithe and springy of step, and above all, overflowing with good humor and love of life. He was aided by others, to be sure, but it was Eric's enthusiasm and charm that carried the day with the whole effort. Shortly before the camp ended, he was stricken suddenly with a brain tumor and died the same day. For such a time as these, God sent this man. The entire camp, especially its youth, was stunned for days. So great was the vacuum that Eric's death had left. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It might be board games. It might be helping out. It might be small and seemingly insignificant, but it is, in fact, what keeps this concentration of a world together. <laughs>